So Hosea chapter 13, starting in verse 12, and God willing, we will conclude the book today. Have you guys noticed it's in our nature to place a lot, our primary focus on less important things? Like we know that God's sovereign and he's all powerful and good and yet we worry over clothes or our hair or if our team is going to win. Like we can be really preoccupied with these things that are really in the light of God's power and goodness quite small. And I remember a time it was rather traumatic. I was probably eight when I was in a car accident with my great-grandmother driving and uh, all of us kids, my brother and sister, were in the back seat and uh, ran over a couple of trees. And there was a, a broken windscreen where my mother had placed her face into it. And, and I remember my sister screaming because she had lost her favorite rainbow shoe. And at the time, I could not blame her because it was traumatic and it was scary. But I was thinking even at eight years old, she was probably three, like, we have a lot bigger things to worry about than your shoe. You know, like, grandma's hurt. Um, and, and thinking about church, I grew up in a church that placed a lot of emphasis on end times theology. And I remember as a kid being much more intrigued about events like the rapture of the church or the second coming of Christ rather than loving others how Jesus loves me like today, right now. How can I love others? And so much of our focus can be on secondary things rather than on Christ himself and what he's done and the gospel. And the aim to live in obedience to Christ today is a far better emphasis than obsessing over secondary things. Um, they, they can distract us from fundamental truth. And it's good to have an understanding of theology about Christ's return. But it's much more important that I would be returning to him when I sin. So we can talk about the timing of Christ's return, but how much better is it for me to ask myself, will I return to God when I drift from him, when I depart from him? How about me returning to God? That's much more important that I'd be about that. Um, and God called the people of Israel to return to him. And that's the message that he bids us today, that we would return, that we would speak to him. He wants to hear us speak, which is amazing. Hosea 13, verse 12 is where we begin. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. The sorrows of a woman in childbirth shall come upon him. He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long where children are born. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. Ephraim's sin was stored up. When people run out of room to store stuff in their homes or their garages, they can hire storage space to keep their things. And Israel was kind of like a hoarder out of control. And it wasn't stuff that they were hoarding, but sin. It's like it was building up, and they weren't confessing it. They refused to get rid of it. They weren't willing to part with it. If they repented of their sin and rebellion, there was atonement for them. There was cleansing and healing. But when you have a lot of stuff and it's accumulating and you can't walk through a room anymore, it makes cleaning really difficult. And uh, neglect can cause even a house to be condemned. I've seen on the news where there was a house that was so neglected, there was so much stuff inside 
that it had to be destroyed. And it's kind of like that was happening to the nation because their sin had been accumulating and it hadn't been cleared out and there hadn't been um, an examination of their hearts. As a result of Adam and Eve's sin, which passed to all people, the curse of sin, it meant increased pain during childbirth. Israel's condition or God's judgment, he compares it to a woman giving birth, a woman in labor. Now, a woman who's giving birth, uh, who's pregnant, knows that you have about a rough estimate of nine months between conception to delivery. Uh, but labor pains can happen at any time. My mother went into labor with my brother when we were being swooped by birds in the backyard. So that was unexpected, and that's when labor began. Um, the northern kingdom was like that child being born in utero but staying in that birth canal. It's like a child that's in a dangerous position. And it says it's not wise for that son to remain in that position. You should be born. You should repent of your sins. You should come out of there. But instead, you're putting yourself at risk. The whole nation's at risk. So the individual people were at risk, and the nation was at risk of death because of their sin. Then you move to verse 14, and you have this total reversal, this very bright spot in a very dark and dreary chapter. Um, we read last week about the things, the judgment that was coming, and it's a parenthetical remark. So he's saying um, there's this sudden change of tone, and, and commentators discuss if it should be rendered in this way because it is so stark, and it's so it quickly goes after verse 14. It goes back to judgment again. But... Paul, he, it's not an exegetical analysis of it, but the rendering of this fits the context of what we see in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55. So if you could turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, and if you want to just slip a piece of paper in there later, we will be coming back to it. Feel free. But Paul references this in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 55. He says, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The strength of the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The law of sin says that the soul that sins will surely die. And death and the grave show mercy on no one. Death doesn't mind if you're young, if you're old, if you're rich or poor. It's not discriminating. And the grave will swallow up whoever perishes. God's people were deserving of death for their sin, but God promised to ransom them. He was going to ransom them from the power of death and the grave. Death had not shown pity, and God would not show pity on death. The Bible says that he is going to throw death into the lake of fire someday. So death is going to die, which is a really lovely thought. <laughs> plagues had resulted in countless deaths, and God's like, death, I'm going to be your plagues. Grave, I'm going to be your destruction. And we see that through the atoning sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. It was fulfilled then. That death has been conquered. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was proof of that, that he has power over sin, over death, and so like a baby in a dangerous position, it jeopardizes the life of the child and the mother. Assistance from a skilled midwife or doctor is needed. If Israel was going to be saved, they needed God's help. 
And if we're going to be saved, if we're going to be delivered, we too need God's help. We cannot do it by ourselves. That, that baby whose shoulder is out of place cannot get himself out of there except God help him. Well, except the doctor help him. But in our, in our case, when we're stuck in sin and we're trapped and there's no way out for us and the pressure is building, we need him to save us. At the end of verse 14, the perspective quickly switches back to judgment. Hosea 13, 15. Though he is fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come. The wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness. Then his spring shall become dry, and his fountain shall be dried up. He shall plunder the treasury of every desirable prize. Samaria is held guilty, for she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword, and their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their women with child ripped open. God had established his people in this promised land, but he says, I'm going to cause this scorching east wind to come. And we talked about an east wind and then many negative uh, times that it's portrayed in scripture that it's a hot wind. It's a dry wind. This land that was once flowing with milk and honey and fruitfulness, living water, it would be dried up. They would um, perish in the famine. The war would be ravaged by war. The land would be ravaged by war. Their treasures would be plundered. The Assyrians would come and for three years besiege Samaria. And that's a place where they offered up sacrifices to Baal, where a temple of Baal was. And the consequences, this this should not have been a surprise to them because God many times in the law, he warned them that this, this exact thing would happen. This would be the consequence of their sin. Deuteronomy 32 verse 23, it says, I will heap disasters on them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction. I will also send against them the teeth of beasts with the poison of serpents of the dust. The, sh- the sword shall destroy outside. There shall be terror within for the young man in virgin, the nursing child with a man of gray hairs. So the justice of God for their rebellion, it was going to come. He did not give way to human pity. See, we as humans, we have a soft spot for certain people. And when someone, you know, gives you, oh, really? And you're like, well, okay. I won't follow through this time. Wink, wink. Like, uh, but, you know, we can be a bit soft. We're not constant. But God's justice is constant. It is true. He's patient, praise the Lord. But the things that he said he was going to accomplish. We see that soft spot. In David, this week uh, during family devotions, we were reading about David and how Absalom, when he usurped the throne, um, David gathered, th- there was going to be a battle, and David gathered Joab and the other Judean uh, generals together and said, hey, if you come across Absalom, that young man, Absalom, he like puts it really gently, be gentle with him for my sake. Absalom, the guy who had created a coup, who had murdered his brother, the one who had slept with David's wives in the sight of all Israel, his concubines, um, who sought to kill him and take away the throne. He's like, go easy on him. Well, when Absalom was caught, did Joab go easy on him? No. Joab put three daggers through his heart. He's like, "Mm, this guy, he was like the hand of justice. David's like, hey, go easy on him. That's kind of like saying, hey, doctor, I know I've got cancer, but go easy on those cancer cells. They're part of me. 
like the things that are exponentially growing to, to ruin you and destroy your life, God was not going to go easy on sin. He was not going to go easy. And he had said, guys, this is the consequence for sin. When you rebel against me, when you choose idolatry, when you rebel against my word, these are the consequences that will come. And God would not go easy on sinners, even if they were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's how ugly sin is. Sin is hideous, and God will deal with it. Now, before you run for the door, know that God often tells us the bad news before the good news. We need to know that we are seriously ill before we will consider making any dietary changes or undergoing expensive or difficult procedures. Like, we're not interested if it's just for fun. Like, who wants to have surgery or have to make these changes? Eliminate this from your diet or this thing that you really enjoy. You're like, heck no, that, I like that thing. And maybe you said, I don't mind if I die 10 years earlier, I want to eat meat or I want to do this thing. Um, but when it comes down to it, if you want to live, this is what you have to do. And sometimes it takes that for us to quit something cold turkey or to say, I need to actually start exercise. I've been talking about it for decades, but I've got to do it now because your life is hanging in the balance. Their wound was incurable, but there was healing in God. And that's the position we find ourselves. We are perishing. We are helpless. We are lost, but there's hope in God. By his grace. I like what C.H. Spurgeon wrote. He said of this chapter, this is so chapter 14, this is a wonderful chapter to be at the end of such a book. I had never expected from such a prickly shrub to gather so fair a flower, so sweet a fruit, but so it is. Where sin abounded, grace doth more abound. No chapter in the Bible can be more rich in mercy than this last of Hosea, and yet no chapter in the Bible might, in the natural order of things, have been more terrible in judgment. When you see the sin of the people and their refusal to listen, you wouldn't think that there would be grace extended to them at the end. But that's God's grace. He's like, I know how things are going to end. And they are good. Not because you're good. It's because God's good. Hosea 14, verse 1. O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. God called his people to return to him. The Lord their God. It says, return to the Lord your God. Return to your master. Return to your king. Return to your sovereign. They had departed from him. They had stumbled in sin. They stumbled. They had fallen, but they were not hindered from returning to him. So if I fall and I'm injured and I need healing, it will say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm injured. How could I return? How could I even walk right now if I, was, if I had fallen? But that's the awesome thing about our God is we can fall we can require healing, we have great need, and yet we're never hindered from returning to him because he's gracious and good to us. 
he'll receive us back. What hope that provides us. And there was no hope in trying to buy back his favor or to earn an audience with God through many sacrifices. He made no demands upon them as far as, well, you know, you've missed all this atonement and you need all these Sabbaths to make up for and, you know, you got to go into detention for a while. Uh, Now, they would go into, uh, as far as the nation would go into captivity, but it was out of his goodness they could come back. He's like, he's not asking for their silver or their gold, for their oxen or their herds, the blood of sheep or goats. He says, bring words with you and come to me. Words that indicate an admission of guilt, an acknowledgement of the covenant that I've made with you. I want to be addressed by your mouths, mouths that have praised idols, mouths that have cried out for salvation from what could not hear you. I want to hear your voice. You need to say something to me. I want to hear you speak. You tell me what you need. You come back to me. So to return, they needed to own their sin without denials, without excuses, without explanations. He just says, bring words and come to me. It's important when we confess sin before God or others that we do so specifically. It's much easier for me to say I am a sinner than to say I am a liar and a thief and an adulterer, right? Because sin, you can almost hide behind the word sin a little bit. But when you start spelling it out, we begin to get a sense of how ugly it is. Sin rarely comes in bunches. It's rarely isolated. It, It almost always comes in bunches. Because it wasn't the fact that they were sacrificing their children on the altars. That's not where the problem started. The problem started when they departed from God at the beginning, when they didn't believe him, when they didn't obey his word, when they began to be slack, when they looked to themselves, when they were filled with pride because of their wealth. That preceded these unlawful marriages and the building of altars and the fashioning of idols and sacrificing of children. If we only focus on our behavior and we never look at the heart, we won't deal with the source of the problem. We shouldn't be legalistic about confession as if God, well, if you don't say the word precise, you know, specifically, God won't forgive you for that. Well, God's not saying that. He's forgiven me of sins that I didn't even know that I had committed. I don't even have a name for them. I mean, we are so inventive when it comes to sin that I, I think there's more sins than words. Um, because of the, the attitudes of our hearts that are just wicked. Jesus once for all provided atonement for all your sin. He has washed you clean if you are in him. You have been justified. You are sanctified and are being sanctified. And when we're made aware of a specific sin, then we should confess that sin specifically. And we should think about what other sins lead to that or what what sins are associated with that that we also have committed and we should be more than sorry because if we're like lord i'm sorry he's like well i guess you should you mean you should be <laughs> if my kid says i'm sorry for that well yeah you did the wrong thing that's the right response but to repent before god is more than sorry it's saying i acknowledge i have done wrong and i acknowledge that you are right and i want to do things your way and i'm going to take intentional action to do that asking is the rule of the kingdom ask and you shall receive we're not to hint with god we need to ask him 
If you want forgiveness and healing, you need to ask him. And they're not magic words. Um, There's no formula to this. We're instructed by God to ask him. We're never in a position to make demands of God. We are his children. We are his servants. And it's not on our merit, even as children or servants, that we can make a demand of God. We were given the right to become children of God by his grace, not because we've earned it. God invites the disobedient, stumbling child back to him. Not because God feels sorry for us, not because he wants to make our life easier, not because he's tired of us having a hard time, or he's annoyed or impatient with us. It's out of his goodness that we are called to draw back to him. So they were to ask, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. So God doesn't take us back because we offer sacrifices or because we made promises. Instead of kissing the calves, which is something they used to do customarily before they would offer their sacrifice, he says, we're going to bring the sacrifices of our lips. We're going to bring praise to you. Psalm 51, 15 through 17, David said, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. There was a time where King Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities, and he says, what are these? He despised them. If you imagine being given 20 cities, you'd be like, oh, that's pretty cool. They may not look great, but I'm a king. I can build them up. I can improve them. It's, I've got the, all this land. I mean, we'd put a good spin on it, right? I, I could sell them. I could, have, I could have whatever I want there. But he's like, man, these things are rubbish. What are you doing giving me these? He despised them, but it's like, these are the sacrifices God will not despise. He'll receive those words. When you have that broken and contrite heart, you're like, God, I, I need you. I need healing. I want, please forgive me for all these sins. There's so many, I can't even count them. And he's like, I accept that. And he'll do that by his grace. And God isn't what he can get out of us. You know, he's not after our stuff. But really, he wants your heart, your affections, your all. And that's rightfully his as our God and King. Hosea 14.3, Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands. You are our gods. For in you the fatherless finds mercy. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from him. Israel had departed from God, but like the son in the parable, the prodigal, who came to his senses, he returned home begging to be a servant and his father received him as a son, that's how God would receive his people. And he said, they're going to come to their senses. They're going to quit going to Assyria. They're going to quit trying to get horses to strengthen their armies. They're going to trust in me. That there's no hope in, in chariots or idols. They w- instead of trying to change their circumstances, they would respond to me in faith and come to me. Now, have you ever had a light bulb moment like that? where you just, like this epiphany, like something needs to change, and I need to take a step in this direction. 
Humility is always an ingredient of positive change. We have to realize we're wrong and that what we're doing is futile before we can be set right. Israel had walked away from God, their father, but the law revealed that God had, was merciful on the fatherless. And this is cool. In the, in the law, there's 11 times where God commands provision for the fatherless. So people who, who were without a father and the children of Israel, they walked away from their father. They were, as, they were like a fatherless child wandering around looking for scraps, trying to survive. The provision wasn't a handout. There were requirements. It was part of their deal, their responsibility to gather up what was given. But listen to this in Deuteronomy 24, verse 19. It says, when you reap your harvest in the field and you forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless and the widow. So God has provision for the stranger, the person who's outside, the alien of the commonwealth of God, the fatherless, and the widow, those who are desolate and alone and feel isolated. Now, the fatherless, the stranger, and the widow, they were required to actually go get it. They had to go to the field and gather it up for themselves, whatever they were going to eat that day. And so if they wanted to be accepted by God, they needed to return to him, acknowledge their guilt, ask to be cleansed. If you want family assistance from the Australian government, you need to fill out the forms and you need to meet the requirements, right? So something you have to do to receive something that's being freely offered you. And it's the same thing with our, our awesome God. Expectation in the goodness of God would result in hope and a response from his people. That wasn't the situation right then, but God saw it, that it would happen. And God said in verse 4, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely for my anger has turned away from him. Again, God did not promise to heal them because they had suffered. You guys have suffered enough. That's not what he's saying. Or, or they had paid a price. You know, well, the, the thousand bulls was a nice touch. You know, like, I see that you're willing to sacrifice, so I'll take you back. So I love you freely. I, my love for you is freely given. He'll heal their backsliding. If you keep sliding down, eventually you're going to fall. And if you fall at uh, my age, you'll, you'll get sore and hurt eventually. Right? Falling is not a good thing. And uh, when we fall, we need healing. And a lot of times we think about healing, we think about physical healing. Like I want a supernatural physical healing because my wrist hurts. It's really sore. So we, we want this to be healed. But God's like, you, you need healing in your mind. You need healing in your heart. You need healing in your circumstances. There's healing that you need that you don't even realize. I mean, how many people die of an illness that they never knew they had until they died? It happens every day where people are sick. They've been feeling down, but they had no idea that the cancer had spread. They didn't know that there was something happening that possibly could have been prevented. And we know that God, he is a healer. And he says, you've been backsliding. You need healing. I will heal that freely because I love you freely. 
Though fierce, God's anger, it only lasts for a moment compared to his love, his mercy. It's everlasting and it never fails. And let's not think that anger and love cannot exist at the same time. In fact, we've been angry with people because we love them. We don't hold, I don't hold the same expectations on other people's children as I had upon my own because I know them and I've tried to train them in a certain way. And when I see them doing things that are a grief to my soul, it grieves me because I love them and I want them to do what's right. If we didn't love our kids, we would shrug off their bad behavior. But because we love them, we care for them. And we can be even angry because um, we know that they know what's right. Now, a lot of times our humanness and our flesh is not able to be angry without sin. But God can. He is angry without sin. He's able to make that distinction because he's like, I feel slighted and I'm disrespected. That sounds like me. That's not God. Uh, but he is gracious and he's kind. He invites people to come back. He says, return to me with those words. Their backsliding hurts. But God is a healer. And when, God, when God's people turn to him in repentance, his anger turns from them. Jeremiah 3.22, it says, Return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. And then it says, Indeed, we do come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Yeah, you're our Father. We will return to you. When people finally owned their sin, they heeded his call to return, he would heal them. They would have a renewed relationship with God. Now, it's a traditional thing in the church that I grew up with, and, and possibly for you as well, um, for people when under conviction for sin would seek to recommit their life to the Lord, right? I need to recommit my life to the Lord. Anyone ever heard that phrase? Ever used it before? Well, you know, commitment is weak and nothing when it comes from a sinner. And the problem, the issue with commitment is it's only one side of the coin because that's just what you are going to do. But see, God has done more than commit to us, he has made a covenant with us, which is something totally different. Commitment is me just saying, I'm going to do this. Whether I do it or not is another question. But a covenant is God is, he has said, I have established this agreement with you. Here are the parameters. Here are the benefits and the blessings. This, you are part of this covenant in Christ. And then we walk in that in light of the covenant that he has made. It's a binding mutual agreement on those terms he has set. So our salvation is not based upon our commitment to God. If it was, could any of us be saved? No. Our salvation rests upon the covenant that Jesus Christ has made with us with his shed blood. He has accomplished it. It is finished. And we enter into that by his grace because he loves us freely. We are to commit the keeping of our souls to him who is faithful. So our hope is not in our commitment, but in the gospel covenant. That's where our hope is. Hosea 14.5, I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. 
His branches shall spread, his beauty shall be like an olive tree, and his fragrance like Lebanon. Those who dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall be revived like grain and grow like a vine. Their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. This doesn't sound like a desert land, does it? In a desert land, dew is refreshing. It causes plants to grow and be fruitful. He's, and he talks about them being like lilies, renowned for their beauty and fragrance. Their roots, they would be lengthened like the famed cedars of Lebanon. And as the roots drank up the moisture, the branches would spread. It would provide shade and cool from the heat of the day. And God said, your beauty is going to be like an olive tree. Now, I, I guess if I had to, my own personal taste... Um, I don't think olive trees are like the most gorgeous of all trees. You know, like kind of gnarly, short. Um, like I would love to have olive trees, but they're messy. There's things about them that, I don't know. But I started learning something about olive trees. They're amazing for their longevity. Some have lived 2,000 to 3,000 years. The trees that are in the Garden of Gethsemane today, those are believed to have been around since Christ, the time of Christ. They are drought, uh, flood, and fire resistant. You can burn them and they will live. They are known, they're evergreen. They're known for their hardiness, that they can be fruitful in the poorest soil. They can withstand um, about anything. I mean, when the dove came back from Noah and the ark, the whole world had been destroyed. What did the dove bring back? An olive branch, right? A little clipping from the olive tree. So he knew that the floodwaters had receded. That judgment had come to an end. So he's like, you are going to be like that olive tree. Judgment will come to an end. You're going to survive this because of my goodness and my love for you. Olives, they provide food, oil. The best of the oil was used to light the menorah in the temple. That was the light that was to be perpetually shining from the olive tree. They dwelt under the shadow of the Almighty, but even as animals take shelter under olive trees in the heat, other nations would take shelter under them. Verse 7, it says they would be revived as grain and grow like a vine. Now, grain needs to be planted every year. So for grain to be revived, there's something going on here. This is a, it's a remarkable change that's happened. Vines, those can grow quickly. If you've ever had uh, the right environment up in Queensland, I, I stayed at a home where they had this massive, uh, uh, what was it? Oh, passion fruit vine. They would cut it back to nothing every year, and it would take over the whole side of the house. It would just grow quick, fruitful. So returning to God in obedience it would do as God had said in Hosea 10:12. Sow for yourself righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. Their fragrance, this transformation, it would be because of God. They're returning to him. Now, isn't it amazing that people who are in sin, who are currently without repentance, could have such a glorious future? It's unexpected. We would never... This does not add up to our minds. That God would save them, he'd heal them, they'd be refreshed. They would be 
have the beauty of a lily, be established and strong as a cedar, be durable and fruitful as an olive tree. They'd be revived and they'd grow like a vine. You put all these things together, it's a picture of what God was going to do. This is more that, this is miraculous. Like this is more than just reversal. This is transformation. And that's something our God does. God would revive the people of Israel who returned to him in repentance. Anyone who says we need revival, and usually when they, most people will say we. We need revival. As in, it's something that needs to happen kind of out here and something that I can see. But if you say that, then it's like, well, are you willing to say I need revival as part of the body of Christ? Like the revival needs to start right here. I need revival. So it's not about we. It's not about what we can see. It's about you being revived, you becoming like this growing vine, this fruitful tree. Lazarus was revived because Jesus called him. He couldn't have come except Jesus had made him alive again, right? Could he have possibly obeyed without Jesus raising him to life? No, because dead people can't hear anything. But Jesus spoke to him. It like, there's no formula for this. But God, he is a reviver. He's a restorer. He's, a, he's miraculous in the things that he does. If we believe Jesus is the resurrection of the life, we don't have to wonder like Mary and Martha, Lord, why didn't you come sooner? Why didn't you do something? And it's like God raised up Lazarus from the dead, not because he felt bad for Lazarus or sorry that he had suffered for four days in the grave. He did it for the sake of the people who did see it so that they would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and have life through believing in him. So I think that's so amazing that God can revive someone, not even for his sake, but for other people to come to Christ, to trust in him, which they did. So may we be the ones revived that others might see the life of Christ in us, that he is king, he is savior and Messiah. Hosea 14, 8, Ephraim shall say, what have I any more to do with idols? I have heard and observed him. I am like a green cypress tree. Your fruit is found in me. The day was far off at this stage, but Ephraim would someday be done with idols. They would quit idols cold turkey, and they would not go back. After those 70 years in captivity, we don't see any sort of widespread idolatry that was found since Egypt. Interesting, when they came out of Egypt, um, Moses told them to put away their idols. Once they were 40 years in the wilderness and they crossed over into the promised land, Joshua, before he died, said, hey guys, get rid of those idols you've been carrying around since Egypt. Get rid of them. Well, they never got rid of them. And they added more when they made all those mixed marriages with the people, especially in the northern kingdom. At a point, idolatry was saturating the north and the south, but the north was primarily an issue where they had the shrines in uh, Bethel and Dan. In the previous chapter, God said he observed them like a leopard in the way. He was prowling around. He's like, I see you. Like, I, I can see what you're doing. But here the same word is used, not for their destruction, but for their protection and their fruitfulness. He's like, I'm observing you. I'm watching you to protect you, to care for you. 
And God compares himself to a green cypress tree. It thrives in full sun. There's deciduous, there's evergreen varieties. And I thought it was very cool, the one thing that they all share in common. Because, you know, those, they're, they can be really long and thin. That's like the Italian kind. And there's ones that are like thick shrubs and hedges. And like there's a lot of different kinds of cypress. But this is what the Encyclopedia Britannica says. It says, cypress trees have one thing in common. They are havens for wildlife. Birds are especially fond of cypress trees, sturdy branches, and needles that make for excellent nest-building material. So he's like, I'm like a cypress tree. You will find refuge in me. You will find a home in me. You find protection and security in me. Not in your idols, not in your peace trees with Assyria, not in accumulating horses for yourselves. He said, your fruit is found in me. And under the new covenant, Jesus has promised to give us the Holy Spirit who causes the fruit of the Spirit to be evident in our lives. All right, Hosea 14, verse 9. It says, who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. The wise and the foolish. The biblical definition of a, of a fool is someone who does not believe that God exists, someone who lives as if he does not exist, because it says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So he's not taking God's word into account. Jesus said, the wise and the foolish both hear my words. The difference between them is how they respond to them. The foolish hear it, they ignore it. The wise, they hear it, and they respond to it in obedience. Matthew Henry, he said, The same sun softens wax and hardens clay. So upon hearing those words, the people with a wise heart that feared the Lord, they would be melted. They would respond to it. They would be softened by the word spoken. However, the fool, the one who does not regard God or care about him at all, they would become harder and harder and judgment would come as they continued in self-confidence to destruction. Now, in the book of Acts, Peter, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He confronted the Jews that gathered on the day of Pentecost, and he confronted them for their guilt of condemning and crucifying Jesus. It says there, they were pierced through the heart. Now, have you ever felt pierced through the heart? Like when you just got nailed. Someone said something, and it was just so true. And it just got you. And you're like, oh, yeah, uh-huh. I feel that. <laughs> it says they were pierced to the heart. And it said, they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? There was something to do. They knew that there was something. They just didn't know what. They're like, yeah, we screwed up. We killed the Messiah. The Messiah that's been promised from the beginning, the one whom the law and the prophets all spoke about, we missed it. We didn't see it. What do we do? Acts 2, 36-39, says, Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as our Lord our God will call. The first thing was to repent. To repent, to come to Christ in faith, to be baptized, and that was something that would identify with Christ, it was something that 
John did. It was a baptism of repentance, but theirs was a identification and obedience to Jesus to say, I am following Jesus, and they would be filled with the Spirit. The call was the same in Hosea's day. It was to repent and return to God. The promise under the new covenant is better because when you repent and you return to him in faith, we are given the Holy Spirit who fills us, who makes us fruitful. Jesus is a stumbling block to many, but to others, the way, the truth, and the life. Now, could you turn back to 1 Corinthians 15, 55? I didn't read this passage in full because there is a, a great um, application there for us. Since Jesus has overcome the de- death and the grave, how ought his victory to impact us today? One Corinthians fifteen fifty five. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Having returned... To God, having been revived by his grace, we've been given victory over sin and death. As Lazarus was able to respond to the call of Christ and exit that tomb walking, so we too can walk with Christ through faith, having been transformed from death to life. We can endure like that olive tree. We can be established like like the uh, cedars. And we're immovable on that rock of salvation, Jesus Christ, through faith in him. And as we follow him, we can abound in the work of the Lord. We can know that our labor is not in vain. Have you guys ever been doing a good work and it's been difficult and it's been hard and you wonder why, what is this all for? What is this possibly accomplishing? Well, remember the the future that God had for his people and the future that he has for us. And the strength that he's given us through Christ, that that is your, I don't want to say destiny, because it's, it seems like God's not involved in that. But really, that's your future. That is the hope that you have. That's not just, I hope so, but it is yours in Christ. Being reminded of all what he's done, let's take words with us and return to the Lord. He wants to hear your voice. He wants to hear you say something to him. Let's acknowledge who he is and the covenant he's made, and that in his strength, uh, by his grace, we'll receive his love and walk in it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word to us all, that you love us enough to tell us that we need you, that we're sinners headed for destruction, and that there is hope and a future for us through your love. Thank you for the covenant that you've made us with us through Jesus Christ. Lord, in us there is no power to do good at all, but in you is all goodness, and we, we love you. We're so grateful that you've adopted us as your children, that you have forgiven us of our sin. And Lord, when we stray from you, help us to return to you quickly. Help us to be fast to confess our sin, to forsake it, and to do the things that please you. Lord, we cannot help ourselves. 
I cannot save myself, Lord. Without you, I am lost and dead in sins. And I pray that you would cause me to look to you, to not be sidetracked by things that are secondary, uh, instead of returning to you with my whole heart. So, Lord, I pray that you would guide us with your spirit as we seek you now, as we bring words to you. Lord, may they be words from a heart that's broken and contrite before you, recognizing our, our great need and that you have supplied that need already through Jesus Christ and that covenant in his blood. Thank you, Lord, for your healing, for the forgiveness, for the transformation, for the future that we have with you and you with us as you dwell in us in Jesus' name. Amen.